Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Hey everyone, thanks again for continuing with us in worship this morning. My name's Andrew, and I'm delighted to open the word for us this morning. Also, just a happy Lunar New Year to you if you're celebrating that and you had some festivities yesterday. I remember being a young Christian when I was first discovering Jesus and all my friends were discovering Jesus and we started to read books about the Bible, books of theology. And I remember my friends who had read a lot more books than I had, uh, peppering our spiritual conversations with words like doctrine and theology and philosophy. And the one that puzzled me the most was eschatology. As a teenager, I was like, Eska, what? And I remember having absolutely no clue what they were talking about. But, you know, I had to nod my head and act as if I did. And, and maybe you can relate. Maybe when it comes to some of those big words that Christians say or that people say in Bible study or at church, you feel a bit like Charlie Brown listening to the grown-ups speaking through this flat trumpet. Now this morning, I want to try and fix that with regards to one word that I mentioned there, eschatology. Eschatology, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which simply means last. And it's a fancy word for talking about the last things in terms of the history of the world. Or to to put it another way, it has to do with the end times. This is really important for us to understand because it's what Jesus has been talking about in chapter 21 of Luke's gospel, which we began last week and we're going to continue in this week. Jesus has been teaching in the temple and recently uh, Herod Herod, King Herod had been building that temple because it had been destroyed when Israel was taken off into exile in Babylon. And so Herod had been rebuilding this temple, and it was magnificent. I mean, some of the stones in the temple were 60 feet long and weighed over a million pounds. It was a wonder of the ancient world. And so as Jesus is there with his disciples, they take to admiring the masonry. I mean, it was impressive stonework. And Jesus sees them in awe. They say, oh, what marvelous stones. And you know what he tells them? He says, you see all this impressive stonework? It's all going to be demolished. What you see as so permanent and strong and enduring is actually going to come crumbling down. And so the disciples are like, what? (laughs) And they naturally ask, when? When is this all going to happen? And so we enter into the second half of Jesus' teaching in response to their question, when is this all going to happen? And let's see what Jesus says. I invite you to have your Bible out with you as we dig into Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 36. Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 36. And let's pay attention because what we're going to hear right now is God's word. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. He says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in 
Judea, flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, we believe that you inspired Luke by your spirit to write these words uh, as they were given by Jesus. And we thank you that he did so. And I pray now, Spirit, that you would come upon us and open our minds, open our hearts to understand what Jesus is saying here to us. We are at your mercy to bring that illumination to us. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're honest, This is a section of teaching that puzzles a lot of us. We love the stories of Jesus healing people. We love Jesus' teaching on love and grace. We love the Sermon on the Mount. But all this talk of armies and violence and, and chaos and turmoil and the end of the world as we know it, it's a little unsettling. We're a lot less comfortable with the doomsday Jesus than we are with the love your neighbor Jesus. Uh, But what we need to know is it's the same Jesus who says both. It's the same Jesus who gives this teaching as the one who invites us to come to him with our burdens because he's gentle and kind and he'll unload our burdens and show us a better way. So I want to invite you to come along with me as we consider these words and work through what Jesus is saying and Specifically, how it plays out practically in our lives. When Jesus is asked about when all this will happen, he describes these terrifying scenes of of turbulence in the world. And that's the big sign that he says to look out for. Look out for turbulence. And what Jesus does is he actually zeroes in on the city of Jerusalem. Did you notice that in verse 20? 
He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its destruction is near. And as we saw last week, this is referring to an actual event that happened in 70 AD when Rome brought its fury against Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and and just uh, brought all the people out and and, uh, enslaved them. Then what happens in verse 25 is it's almost as if after the bit about Jerusalem, Jesus zooms out and he starts talking about events in nature and in uh, the world cosmically. He says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish. So one of the questions you might have is, well, which is he talking about? Is he talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or is he talking about the end time? Is he talking about eschatology? And the answer is both. The answer is both. Here's what he's doing. It is Jesus uses an, an event that they are about to experience and that a lot of people can relate to. I mean, many of you can relate to being at war and in a time of war, you who have come to Canada in the last few years. You, you know what it's like to be taken over and forced to flee your city. And what Jesus says is the fall of Jerusalem is like a preview. It's like a preview of what it's going to be like in the end time. I mean, when you're going to watch a movie, a lot of us, especially if you're like me and you like to research, you'll watch the trailer, you'll watch the preview, and it's a minute or two minutes long, and it gives you a sense of the full feature, but it's not the full feature. That's what Jesus is doing here. The fall of Jerusalem is like a preview of the end time. And here's the point. You'll know that it's near when you experience this kind of turbulence, not just like a bit of shakiness, a bit of turbulence here and there, but a turbulence that shakes the very foundations of everything you thought was so secure and stable. It will shake the monuments and the values and the ideologies and the powers, even the elements of creation. Everything that we thought would endure and was unassailable will come crumbling down. That's what Jesus says about recognizing the time. Just like you know, summer's almost here when the leaves start to bud. You'll know the end is near when you see this kind of turbulence. Now, as we're considering the end time, as we consider eschatology, I just want to address two problems to try and clear out some of the baggage that might be part of this whole conversation for us. So two big problems that we run into with regards to the end time. The first problem is an underemphasis, is that we make too little of eschatology. And I want to keep using that word so that you understand what we're talking about When I say eschatology, we make too little of eschatology. I mean, Jesus' teaching is really confusing. And then there's the fact that there is so much misuse and weird teaching out there about the end times. And so it kind of puts us off. Like a lot of us in the church don't even want to go near it for that reason because maybe it's just too confusing or we don't want to be associated with some strange teaching. And so practically for us, a lot of us just leave thought about the end times either to the academics, you know, they can go theorize it about it in the universities or uh, we leave it to those sketchy soapbox preachers on YouTube, (laughs) 
And we say, that's their thing, but, but I'm not going to go near it. And we don't embrace it for ourselves. And that's a problem. But on the other hand, we have the problem of the sketchy soapbox YouTube preachers. It's the problem of a distorted emphasis on the end times that sees passages like this and others in the Bible as a predictive tool. And that's what a lot of us are reacting to, right? That's why a lot of us don't want to go near it because these bizarre teachings of, of people who have made the end times like their little pet project and they're trying to parse contemporary events and they're trying to crack the codes they think are embedded in the Bible and, and to make predictions. And so you get, you know, YouTube channels, TV channels, podcasts, just flooding the landscape with some sketchy teaching and cultish offshoots. But when we listen to Jesus' teaching in this chapter, what's the very first thing he tells his disciples? In verse 9, he says, watch out that you're not deceived. In other words, it's almost like Jesus knew, hmm, on this issue, there's going to be a lot out there that could deceive you. So watch out, pay attention. Because people are going to come claiming, I am he. Or the time is near and, and Jesus tells his disciples, don't go after them. Just because they have a TV channel and uh, a ministry named after them and like 100,000 subscribers and a really sweet tan, don't go after them. <laughs> don't listen to what they're saying. He's also said elsewhere in Matthew chapter 24, so clearly, and I don't know if Jesus could get any clearer than this. In verse 36 of Matthew chapter 24, he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. And so we need to recognize that when we're talking about the end times or eschatology, Jesus himself has said, this is shrouded in mystery. The specifics of when and the mechanics of what, they're shrouded in mystery. But he has told us what we need to know. He has told us what we need to know to live now faithfully to his teaching. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, Frederick Dale Bruner, gives us wise wisdom uh, about this. He says that we should not have to re resort to later prophecy conferences uh, for updatings of Jesus' only provisional teaching. And notice the tongue-in-cheek quotations there. And what he says is, Jesus has said comprehensively and presciently all we need to know about what lies ahead. Jesus has already told us what we need to know about what lies ahead. And so the two errors that, that I want us to clear away so that we can get at a, a, a balanced and biblical understanding of eschatology is, is on the one hand, we ignore it altogether because we don't know what to do with it and, and it's kind of wacky sometimes. And, or on the other hand, we see it as a predictive tool, this futurology approach. So what's the right emphasis I want you to consider this morning that the end times or eschatology, even though it's about the last things, isn't only about the future, but it's about now. That it's about the present moment, that this is something of crucial importance for us now and that it is extremely practical. It's not just an intellectual stance, but it's a mindset 
that we need to embrace as Jesus' disciples. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale gives us great insight as to how the apostles, Jesus' first disciples, who he then sent out as apostles to carry on his mission, he gives us insight as to how they understood the end times. And he says this, that the apostles understood eschatology not as mere futurology, but as a mindset for understanding the present moment within the climaxing context of redemptive history. That's the right emphasis. It's a mindset for understanding our present moment within the climax and context of redemptive history, meaning understanding the present moment in light of what we know is coming in the end, that God wins, that his kingdom comes in his fullness, that God is making all things new and living now in light of the final day will that, when that will be our all-encompassing reality. You see, the right emphasis is that the future coming of Jesus energizes the present moment with joyful expectation. And that's the right emphasis that I want us to see today. That we shouldn't keep it at arm's length because it's puzzling, or we shouldn't use it as this tool for predicting the future, but seeing it as energizing the present moment in light of what is coming. And here's one of our challenges, because let's be honest, uh, day in and day out, the monotony of life drones on. And even though things seem to be going in the same way they always have, the gospel actually calls us to wake up. The gospel calls us to wake up and see that the messianic age is here that God is carrying out his rescue plan for the world and the end is near. I mean, 2,000 years ago, that's what the apostles believed, that they were already living in the end time, that it had started with Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the sending of the Holy Spirit on the church. And that was 2,000 years ago. And just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean they were wrong. It means they were faithful to what Jesus had told them and what scripture had shown them about the end. The point I'm trying to make here is that we need to think of the end times not in terms of a future that hasn't yet come, but in terms of a future that has already broken into the present moment as a kingdom that is already here and is still to come. And now I hope we can draw the threads of eschatology on the one hand and the kingdom on the other together. And can you see how closely related these ideas are? The fact that the nature of the kingdom of God, that Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God is at hand and then demonstrated it, showed us what it was like in his teaching, and yet it's not fully here, is tied to the idea that we have this future that is secure, but in the present we're living in the midst of two different ages, in the midst of the kingdom of the world and in the kingdom of God. It's a future reality That is also a present reality. It's now and not yet. It's already and still to come all at once. We need a mindset for understanding the present moment within the context of redemptive history. Now, 
it's not lost on me that this is probably a radically different view of the end times than what you're used to. But it's important that we start thinking this way because it's, it's truthful, it's biblical, and it's practical for us as we follow Jesus now. The other cool thing is that this is actually embedded in our DNA as a church of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. A.B. Simpson, who, who's the founder of our church tradition, wrote one of the cornerstone books of our, of our denomination that has influenced us called The Fourfold Gospel. And in that book, he lays out some of our core convictions about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And there he claims and lays out the fourfolds of the gospel, that Jesus is our Savior. But he's not only our Savior, he's also our sanctifier, and he's also our healer. And get this, he is our coming king. He's our coming king. But look how Simpson talks about this future coming of Christ. In the fourfold gospel, he says this, the truth and hope of the Lord's coming is linked with all truth and life. It's linked with all truth and life, and it's the church's great and blessed hope. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that the coming of Christ isn't just a future reality, but it is linked with all truth and life now. He lived with this deep conviction that Christ's coming is a reality that is to infuse every part of our life, like electricity. Like electricity. It's not just about the future, it's about life now. Now, <clears throat> a lot of churches and people and leaders uh, these days have kind of backed off of that emphasis uh, of Christ's return. Or maybe they talk about it as if they were embarrassed about it, like, like it's some archaic doctrine. I mean, it's a bit awkward, right? It's, it's been 2,000 years, folks, and, and Christ hasn't come yet. So it's almost like the attitude is, well, we need to walk that one back a bit. We need to put the brakes on that one, maybe emphasize some other stuff that's a bit more practical uh, that will help our church grow, that is accessible. But I just want you to know that's not our church and that's not our church tradition. We are full on for the coming of Christ because that's the bottom line and the clearest note about Jesus' teaching of the end times. Yes, it will come with turbulence, but get this what Jesus says is that at the end of history, he will come again. And it doesn't matter what your particular view of the end times is, whether you are pre-millennial or post-millennial or amillennial, or if you're like me, you're just a millennial. It doesn't matter. Bottom line is everybody should agree that Jesus is coming. He's coming. It says so in verse 27. He says, at that time, they will see the Son of Man. And, and just to, to clear away any questions about that, Jesus is talking about himself. Son of Man, that's his favorite way to refer to himself in the Gospels. He says, the Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus is the coming King. That doesn't mean he's not already King. He is king. He rules with all power and authority. And that doesn't mean he's like an absent king who's just kind of left the world to its own devices until he comes back again. No, he's present. He told his disciples, uh, I will send another one like me to be with you, the Holy Spirit. 
And so he's left us, the church, to carry out his messianic mission of announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and embodying it in how we live and act and treat one another and how we move about in the world. He's king and he's present, but brothers and sisters, he's also coming. He's coming in glory to bring the reality of the kingdom in its fullness. And that means judgment. That means putting evil away for good. It means saying evil, the buck stops here, your time is done, you're done. And so instead of hiding or minimizing this part of the gospel, the part about Jesus' return, we actually believe it is good news. It is good news that has practical and profound implications for our lives now. So let's turn to consider that, those practical applications. This isn't just an intellectual stance. There is a kind of living that we are called to as we live now in the end time. Look at verse 34. Jesus himself gets really practical. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you like a trap. So if we're not careful, that day will not be a cause for celebrating in us. It'll be a cause for for weeping and moaning. And what Jesus is doing is he's using a metaphor here about physical weight, right? Be careful that your hearts be not weighed down. And he applies physical weight to our hearts. And like Jesus is so pastoral. He's so caring because he knows that we walk through life carrying these heavy weights and that our hearts are burdened. But he says, it it doesn't have to be that way. Be careful, watch out. In other words, there are some things you can do to resist that heavy heartedness. And what he does is he mentions really two things that I want to talk about here, to resist and then one thing to do. So two things to resist and one thing to do. First, he says, resist intoxication. That's the first thing. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation. Now, that's not a word we use every day, but it it basically means binging. It's the binge that leads to drunkenness. Now, think about today. Parties and drinking are not the only way we can intoxicate ourselves. I mean, in Jesus' day, before the internet, before organized sports and Netflix and Instagram and video games, really, the main way you let off steam and medicated yourself against the hardships of life was to drink and party. But since then, let's be honest, we have invented so many other ways to do that. And this is a warning Yes, it applies to drunkenness, but we have to expand this to a lifestyle or to engaging in practices of intoxication, whatever your drug of choice might be, whether it's entertainment or comfort or video games or substances or pornography or even shopping. Drinking might not be your thing, but there's a whole lot of other ways our hearts can get weighed down. And the irony here, and it's a sad irony, is that within our hearts is this longing for connection with 
the transcendent, for connection with more in life, for fulfillment and wholeness. And, and we so often turn to things as uh, the means by which we want to fill that longing, but those things leave us emptier than we were before. They're, they're, it's dissipation. It, it evaporates like smoke. I love what C.S. Lewis says about our desires. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an arrogant child, or sorry, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at, a, at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He's making the point that Jesus holds out for us this holiday at the sea and we are so content to stay in the slum making mud pies. The longing you feel for ultimacy and for eternal significance can only be satisfied in Jesus. Both now in, in foretastes as his kingdom is already, but fully at his coming when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, the call comes to not let our hearts get weighed down and encumbered by these other things. Let's resist the intoxicating influences that weigh our hearts down. But second, he says, resist anxiety. This one is huge. Don't let your heart get weighed down by the anxieties of life, he says. And it, what he's really talking about here is the, the anxieties of the daily mundane existence of human life, ordinary stuff, the anxieties of life. This one's huge for us. Anxiety has been defined by some as the emotional distress that comes when something vital to your life is threatened. The emotional distress that comes when something vital to your life is threatened. And so it's really helpful to think through. Is there something that I'm holding on to as vital that isn't vital? I mean, the, the things that we get worried about, sure, they, they might be important, but are they vital? Some of them might not even be important. But are there things that we elevate in our lives to the level of ultimate significance that aren't ultimately significant? And the answer is probably yes. <laughs> like every day, like I treat my own personal space at home as a parent as like, this is vital to my existence. And if I don't get this, I'm gonna die. And so I freak out at my kids when they invade my space or they color on the walls or whatever. It's like, Andrew, what is truly vital? <laughs> what is truly vital? What are you holding on to here? That isn't vital. We do this all the time. And we can resist the anxieties of life by considering our, our heart attitude towards the things that cause us that emotional distress when they're threatened. Now, I just want to briefly speak to those of us who are actually under the weight of crippling anxiety, medically speaking, and I'm not saying this is a quick fix, but I'm saying this could be helpful to you to really think about what is vital what is vital to my life and what is important and, and can I trust God with the important things? Can I trust God with even the important things? You see, on a deeper level, resisting anxiety means trusting Jesus with what we hold to be vital, 
But not only that, it's actually to see Jesus as the vital thing in our lives. It's to see Jesus as truly vital. It's to see his return and his coming as the thing that is fully going to satisfy us and deal with our anxieties and our worry. But there's one last thing, one last thing to do. So resist, uh, resist intoxication, resist anxiety. But then he says in verse 36, be always on the watch. And literally what this means is wake up. Wake up, stay awake. How? Praying. Stay awake. How? By praying that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. Notice the link between waking up and prayer, and it's such a tragic thing that so, for so many of us, our prayer time is more like sleepy time, right? It's the time where we're falling asleep. When prayer is meant to be where we truly wake up to God and to the gospel and to the kingdom and to the coming of Christ. And Jesus is just giving out this call to prayer and to wake up. And it's been really cool watching in our church family in the last few months as as God has been deepening us in prayer. In our prayer gatherings, even though we're meeting in a Zoom room online, there's been great attendance and great movements of prayer. And I want to encourage those of you who have been part of that to keep going, to persevere. And I want to encourage those of you who haven't joined us, maybe you don't see prayer as vital, or it's a burden, or it's a sleepy thing, to start praying for the first time, maybe on your own, but definitely joining us together on Wednesday evening. I want to tell you, nothing we do at First Alliance will make you feel vitally connected to what's happening here as coming to that prayer meeting. Nothing. There's lots of great ministry happening. There's lots of good teaching. There's lots of great fellowship groups and service to the community. But believe it or not, prayer is where it's at. Prayer is central for who we are. Prayer wakes us up. Even when you are completely fried at the end of your day and it takes everything that is in you to just show up in the Zoom room, God uses it to wake you up and energize you. I started attending prayer meetings when I was a teenager, like I said, when I was starting to get to know Jesus. I started attending prayer meetings at my church. And let me tell you, when I started going, it was a discipline. I didn't want to go I didn't want to go sit in a room with people I barely knew, most of them like decades and decades older than me. It was a discipline to go to the prayer meeting. But you know what? Even though I dreaded going, I never regretted going. I might have dreaded going, but I never regretted going because even if I was praying with people I didn't really know, we walked away having met with God and he woke us up to the reality of who he is and what he's doing and of his coming reign and his coming kingdom. And we participated in that vital, central vocation of the church to pray for our world and to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. To cry out, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is so central to living with a mindset 
where we understand our present moment within the climaxing context of redemptive history. Eschatology is crucial for us. And I want you to invite you to pray with me now as we get ready to, to reflect on what God has been saying to us. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would send your spirit on us, your people, the church. I ask that you would take our minds and renew them, take our eyes and open them, take our heavy hearts and lift off their burdens, take our sins and forgive them, take our feeble wills and strengthen them. Help us to live in eager expectation of your son's return. And above all else, give us a vision of you, Lord Jesus, and a knowledge of you and a love for you that we might hold on to you as supremely vital and precious above all else in our lives. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.